0: Well, it's good to see everyone. Let me start with a story, as uh, I have been doing recently. Um, Before the the, the Olympic glory and the world records, there was a young boy named Michael Phelps uh, from Baltimore, Maryland. And he um, started off with an ordinary life, except for one thing, which we all know. He was exceptional at swimming. But behind his exceptional gift in his personal life, there was a lot of darkness going on that nobody else, a lot of people didn't know about, a lot of people didn't see. And Michael Phelps, though, rose to, has risen to great fame. He's one of the most decorated uh, Olympic, I think he is the most decorated Olympic champion of all time with uh, the most uh, gold medals. I think it was by the 2016 Rio uh, Olympics that He had, I think it was 19 gold medals. I think since then, now he has like 23 gold medals. Um, On the outside, he's the kind of person that looks like he's living the dream, that he's undefeatable, unbreakable, invulnerable. But rewinding a few years, I think it was back in 2012, when he won the London Games, something happened had been building for many years there was a shift inside of him and it was a combination of a few things it was in part to do with some personal dissatisfaction that he had in his life also some childhood issues namely around the divorce of his parents when he was a young kid never really dealt with but then also his estrangement from his father all of these things left him teetering on the edge and Michael Phelps found himself living recklessly with substance issues and really impaired judgment. The voices that he was listening to were leading him on a path of destruction. The voices of the world telling him what it meant to be a champion, what it meant to succeed, those voices, the voice, the words of his father from years ago, and even the Now, the absent voice of his father in his life as well, but also the thoughts of his, the voice in his own mind, his own thoughts and feelings leading him on a path of destruction. And he was spiraling out of control, struggling with depression and anxiety to the point where he wanted to take his own life. The golden boy of American sports was deeply, deeply struggling. One day, While he's facing his demons, when it felt like things couldn't get any worse, he received a phone call that changed the course of his whole life. Let me pause the story there. We'll get back to it at the end. It relates to our passage today, leave you on a cliffhanger. Um, We're in our series called The Real Jesus, and uh, not to be confused with The Real Housewives, uh, which is not real at all. But we're going through the Gospel of Mark. This is a journey through uh, the the life and ministry of Jesus. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 21 through 28 today. We'll have it on the screen. We have Bibles in the pews as well, so use those. And if you don't own a Bible, please take one of those Bibles with you. It's our gift to you. Um, What we have to do and what we're trying to do during this series is look at the Jesus of Scripture. That's the real Jesus. That's the Jesus who can satisfy our hearts, who can set us free, and who can redeem us and rescue us from evil. What we've learned so far in this series is we've learned about the true message of the gospel, the gospel of grace. We've learned about the continuity from Old Testament to New Testament. We've learned about Jesus' baptism, his identity, his time of testing in the wilderness. Last week, we looked at the calling of his first disciples, how he's turning them into fishers of men. We looked at that, and then we continue today. So let's pray, and let's read. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your life, and we pray that you would continue to transform us as we learn about who you are and what you came to do, that we would be forever changed, and that we would find the deepest joy that only can be found in you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately... Galilee. This is God's Word. So the Bible, unapologetically, unashamedly, tells us of demons. And the Bible itself, of course, is a supernatural book full of uh, miracles. And uh, it should be no surprise to us if you believe in God. Uh, It's the same exact same thing, exact same amount of faith. And logically, it makes sense. If you're going to believe there's a God, uh, then you're going to believe in miracles. Those are one in the same belief if there is an original designer behind everything, uh, then that designer must have had the power and the intelligence and the ability to make everything that we see and everything that we have, and more than what we see, not just a physical realm, but a spiritual realm, and that it would be, in fact, easier for that original designer to tweak things along the way. And that's what miracles and supernatural things are. There's Uh, angels and demons, these things, the Bible doesn't shy away from these things. These things are real. And Jesus performed signs and wonders. Exorcisms are among those signs and wonders. His followers performed these things as well. We see it continuing throughout church history. We see it today. We've seen people have set free from demons. We've seen healings happen. We see these things happen. These things continue to happen. But the biggest thing that Jesus came to do Obviously, the signs and the wonders were really important. That was a big thing that Jesus did. But the, even bigger than that was his teaching. His teaching. Without understanding his teaching and what he came to do, the signs and the wonders are kind of meaningless. And even Jesus encountered this problem because people would come to him saying, Hey, we heard you can work miracles. Can you show us a sign? Can you do a magic trick? Can you do something for us? And Jesus refused to do it, because the purpose of Jesus coming is so that we would have a relationship with God. The signs point to the miracles and the supernatural things. They show the power of God, and they point to the teachings and the the reality of the words of Jesus, but that's what they do. That's what the, the greater thing that he's come to do, and the greatest work that Jesus ultimately came to do, that he knew the whole time going through this, the greatest work he came to do was to go to the cross. That he would be nailed to the cross for our sin as a substitution. That our evil works and the wrong intentions of our own heart, our own selfishness, all the, all the screwed up stuff inside of us that God would take it away from us and put it on Jesus on the cross, that's the greatest work. And you can test the quality of your own faith and the quality of other people's faith by how central the teaching of the cross is in somebody's life, how central it is, how important it is to understand this is the biggest thing, the greatest thing, the main thing that Jesus came to do was to die for sinners, was to be a sacrifice, that we wouldn't be sacrificed, that we wouldn't be lost. He would be lost instead of us being lost. And so, you test the quality of your own faith and you realize the quality, of the, the depth and the maturity of your own faith by understanding how important that act of Jesus is to you. How much do you think about it? How much do you talk about it? Does it, does it affect you? So we see Jesus, he's declaring, he, he's, he's preaching his message. We've seen he's been out on the streets preaching, continuing the the, the message of John the Baptist of repentance, and now he's going to the synagogue. And really, the the first thing that Jesus does in his public ministry is he is going and teaching. He's going. The synagogue, essentially, you know, it's an assembly hall for Jewish people, that the local population. You know, most towns would have had a, a synagogue. And so the, the local population of that town attends the synagogue and the, the Torah, the first five books of, of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, they would be read uh, by the scribes, by the rabbis, by the religious leaders, they would be read and explained, and people would go to, to the synagogue to hear this, to be fed and to be instructed on the revelation, the words of God that were delivered through, through Moses. And this is their, essentially their version of church. And to, to understand Jesus is to understand that, that this is where Jesus shows up. Jesus, of course, he goes out to the streets, goes out to the, the people. He's, it's a message for everyone. But it's very interesting to see that Jesus, what well, he makes a big deal, makes a point out of going from synagogue to synagogue in different places, declaring, gathering with people who are trying to see God already and trying to show them the truth, steer them in the right way towards God. And so Um, For us, we've got to understand, we, we show up at church, we show up because, like for them, we want to sit under the words of Jesus, we want to sit under the revelation from God, we want to be changed by it, transformed by it. There's life and power in the words and the teachings of Jesus. And we're told that the people were absolutely astonished with Jesus, with his words and his actions, absolutely astonished, amazed by it. And, um... we see that this astonishment um, from the people was in contrast to their scribes who seemingly had no authority. This level of, of astonishment for us trying to imagine it like this. On one day, this is how you can get close to understanding their level of astonishment. On one day, these three things happen to you. You successfully managed to migrate from your old smartphone to your new smartphone. Also, you manage to construct an Ikea item of furniture with no leftover parts and without getting mad at somebody. And, and add to that, you, you managed to successfully file your taxes and, 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 and you get money back. That, if all those three things happen on the same day, take that, times it by 100, you're getting close to the level of astonishment that the people had of Jesus. Jesus taught with authority. His approach was his style. We could say his communication style was. was we can assume would be better than the scribes. That he, he outshined them in terms of how he delivered it. Um, we'll get into why that was the case. We, we can be confident of that. Um, but it's more than just that. It's not just that Jesus was just had some teachery Um It's it's that the content of what he said, the insights. The, the truth that he he spoke was way beyond what the scribes would talk about, and so because of this astonishment because of how amazing Jesus was at this, his fame spread very quickly around the areas. Fame spread people you know it's getting popular. this is the original way to go viral before there were cat videos and things like that. This is how it was done in their day and age they didn 't have an education system like we would think of it, they, they did value education. People were taught the Torah and, the, of course, went to the synagogue to, to, to hear that. But it was heavily, it heavily kind of hung upon the, the ability of the scribes. The scribes were the ones that were invested in the scriptures, that were uh, deep into the scriptures. So they, the scribes were the experts. They would interpret the Torah for the people. So the people were highly dependent you know, some people had more of an education. There was kind of a a spectrum here, a continuum here in terms of some people had no education, some people had lots of education, but nobody was really studying the Torah like the scribes were. This was their responsibility. You could almost say they're like the tenured professors of our day in one sense. They're the, the, the experts, the ones that spend all their time in a in a classroom, studying, analyzing, figuring it out what does it what does it all mean and um and so the scribes their um their words were very powerful people um, the, the people's morality was defined by the scribes as the people had questions about, well, how do we interpret this what does what does the Lord Moses say about this? How should we do this? And the scribes are the ones that gave people the answers, so they determined the right and wrong way for people to live, even this is, they could be called rabbis, teachers, scribes. Even the word rabbi means uh, my great one. Now, that's a title to give yourself, isn't it? It's like, I'm, I want to be your follower. I want to learn from your teaching. What should I call you? I've got an idea. My great one. That's what rabbi means, my great one. So this is the, this is the role of the scribes that they played, the role that they played in, in the time of, of Jesus, that... They were even, uh, in some instances, some of them were so popular and so highly esteemed that they were more respected than the high priest in the temple, which is hard to imagine because you'd imagine that's the, the most important role, but even some of the scribes were more highly esteemed. When you entered uh, or when you enter the synagogue, the best seats in the synagogue were always reserved for the scribes, and if a, if a scribe entered a room, everybody stood up to honor them they're a big deal. They're the religious elite of the day. They're like the original influencers, except they actually had an important job. So the people thought that they understood what authority was because they had the scribes. We can go to them. They can interpret things. They can tell us what it all means. So therefore, we understand what authority means. But when Jesus shows up on the, screen, on the scene and on the screen, when Jesus shows up, this is what you keep learning with Jesus is, oh, everything's, we, we got it wrong. We didn't see it. The word authority means out of the original stuff. Out of the original stuff. Um, this is, the word authority comes from the word author. If you are the author of something, you are the creator of something, that means you are the authority on that subject, on that thing. So when people are listening to Jesus, Jesus gets up in the synagogue and he starts teaching, starts explaining, they're not getting somebody else's interpretation, they're not getting um, just the best minds, the best human minds that can figure it out, they're getting it from out of the original stuff. They're getting it from the source itself, so they're hearing the creator of the universe explain what it all means. To give context to it, to give understanding to it, to give explanation to it, to get them back to what it actually means. And what's what's interesting for us is that the, the gospel writer Mark, he doesn't give us at this point. He doesn't give us the content of what Jesus is saying. Actually, Mark is very light on uh, the specific teachings of Jesus. In Chapters later on, we do get some of the parables that Jesus spoke. Some of the other gospel writers, Matthew in particular, includes a lot of the the direct teachings and parables of Jesus. But what Mark is getting at here is, in one sense, of course, everything that Jesus says, we want to, you know, it's all important. So we don't want to say it's not important. But in one sense, because it's Jesus saying it, because he is the author. I don't want this to be taken the wrong wrong way. It almost doesn't matter what he says. The fact that he is saying it means it matters. You understand what I mean by that? And so Jesus, so of course Mark does end up recording some of the content of what Jesus is teaching. That comes later on in the gospel. But what he's wanting us to focus on is the identity, is the nature, is the person who is in front of the people who is delivering to them this life-changing, life-transforming teaching. There's power in the words of Jesus by themselves. And this, this life, this person, his identity, even if you haven't heard his teachings, a lot of people don't even know the teachings of Jesus. You've been affected by his life. You've been impacted by his life. His life has turned the world around. We have this quote here from James Allen Francis, a pastor and author. He writes this. He says, I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched and all the all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings uh, that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. He's talking about Jesus. Have you ever watched your favorite movie with the director's commentary on before? You ever done this before? Some, Sometimes if you're, if, you're, if you're a bit geeky or you're just super into a show or a movie or something. Actually, I haven't done this in many years. I feel like it was more popular when DVDs were a thing. Is, is, it, is it because of streaming services and now people do it less? or people I don't know. But you know what it is. When you've you got the director's commentary and you, and you turn it on, what happens when you're listening to, watching your favorite, one of your favorite movies or a movie you just love so much and you're listening to the director's commentary, uh, what's happening is your interpretations and what you think is happening and, and your conclusions about it Are all going out the window. And you're hearing from the creators, from the authors, you're hearing what actually happened. You're hearing, well, when we had to do this scene, this was what was going on in the background. Or we had to do it like this and not this. Or we had planned it originally this way, but it ended up being this way. And we felt that was better. It communicated this other thing we were trying to get across. And so you learn all this stuff and you're like, man, I had no idea. I thought something else. Or I had this feeling about it. Now I feel completely different about it or it's tweaked my understanding of it because I'm listening to the authors. Um, I am a big fan of the the show The X-Files. Grew up watching The X-Files, Mulder and Scully. I have got a shout-out there from X-Files fans. And I've been slowly chipping away watching some of the episodes with my two boys. And we recently watched an episode where uh, cockroaches invade this small town and lots of people die. It's great. And... uh, Actually, that's happening in real life right now, in a town in Iowa, there's actually a cockroach uh, outbreak. It's, it's basically isn't it amazing when, like, TV shows, uh, an episode comes to life, something actually comes real in, in real life? It's great. <laughs> great for, for us, not for them. Uh, so anyway, so uh, but I have this friend of mine who is, is a big-time X-Files geek, major geek. and he. Uh, so we're telling him, hey, we were just watching this one episode, and he said, oh my gosh, that's my favorite episode from season three. That's the best. He's saying all about it. And he had heard the directors talking about that episode, and he said, oh, do you remember the one scene when Agent Scully comes into that uh, uh, gas station, that grocery store, and as she walks in, there's a car accident uh, behind her, and she spins around and then walks in. And he said, did you know that wasn't supposed to happen. The car accident was actually real, but they left it in because the actor played it off as if, as if it was part of the scene. And because it was actually a tumultuous time, people are freaking out because of all the, uh, the cockroaches that everyone's dying from. And um, learning that from my, my, my super geeky friend who loves the X-Files um, was, it's a weird to say this, it was kind of riveting to, to learn that. I was like, that, that changes it for me. That's, that's a whole different dynamic. I've learned something, through my friend, from he got it from the authors, from the creators, and it, it just it expands your understanding of what it took to make that, of what was going on, of something creative behind the scenes. It's a similar way with the uh, Mission Impossible movies. Maybe you can relate to this better than X Files. Tom Cruise always doing crazy stuff, always doing his own stunts, right, in these movies. And I think one of the early Mission Impossible movies, uh, the opening scene, right, he's climbing up a rock face really high up, and they filmed this one scene, I think it was the last scene they filmed, um, because he had no safety net, no safety wire, and I think, I haven't seen it in many years, so I hope I'm not butchering it, but he jumps from one rock face onto this small ledge, and the director couldn't watch him do it, because basically he like, if he messed it up, it was, it's a one-take thing, if he messed it up, he would have died, and I mean, that tells you these guys are a little crazy, right, a little cuckoo. Uh, but it's kind of riveting. When you, wa- when you watch that on the screen, you're like, this is, this is, there's something more real about it. It's, it's, it's not just a story. It's not just entertainment at that point. It's something beyond that. It's like this, I mean, that would have gone down in history if, that, if, he, if that, he'd messed that up. <laughs> Even in the, new, the newest uh, Tom Cruise movie, what is it, the Top Gun, the latest Top Gun movie, Maverick, they, the actors are actually the ones flying the fighter jets and, and they're, they're manning their own, their own camera, filming themselves in the cockpit, they learn to fly these fighter jets. And so when you see them navigating the fighter jets in the movie, you realize they're the, they're, it's not CGI, it's not an actor playing it for them, it's them. They are doing it. When you learn from the author, from the creator of something, when you get the insight, when you get the context, when you get the meaning, when you understand what's actually going on, it enhances the story. It's riveting. It's astonishing. The people were astonished. They didn't know who Jesus was at that point. But they're like, it's like, this is, there's a level of power with this that we've never experienced before. And authority is, you know, there's maybe a level of, of confidence that comes across. If somebody has true authority, there could be, there could be a level of confidence that comes across. But it's, that's only the surface level of it, right? And people can, can, can act confident as well and have no authority, of course. We understand people can fake it. So, so yes, there, there would be a, a certain poise in Jesus, a certain sense of, of confidence, of, of, of certainty in what he's saying. But it's much deeper than that. It's that he's giving his intent. He's giving the intent of God. And that's what it means to relay and, 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 and to communicate the truthfulness of something is to say, no, 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 no. This is what the author intended. This is what the, the creator wanted. That's what. That's what that's the foundation of authority. That's what it all rests upon. Um, my son, McCray, was telling me recently that you, nobody can buy a Bob Ross painting. Do you know this? You know Bob Ross, right? The famous painter, the guy with the cool hair, the, the, the soothing soothing voice. His wish was that none of his paintings would be sold. So, his, so there's a room somewhere with all Bob, full of Bob Ross paintings. There's hundreds of these things, right? Is this correct? <laughs> it was his intent, right, that he didn't want to sell any of his paintings. Yeah. So there's, they're there's, there's somewhere. They're in stores. His kids have them. He left them to his kid. whatever. His family has it. His intent, the, the, the creator, the author's intent was, don't, I don't want to sell anyone to, to buy my painting. I don't want them to, you know, he just, for whatever reason, that was his wish. But I was thinking about this recently. I was thinking, you know, what are the grandkids going to do? What are the great grandkids going to do? If those paintings fall into certain hands, what do you think people are going to say? They say, well, he's been gone for a while. You know, if he was alive today, he'd, you know, we could raise money for charity and take a little bit of a cut, you know? This is, this is the problem. The further you get away from the author's intent, from the, the creator's instructions, it's very tempting you lose what it originally means, and you, you, you start to come up with some skullduggery. I like that phrase, skullduggery around, and shenanigans around, well, maybe they would have changed their mind. Maybe they would have meant something else. And this is the problem for the scribes of the day, of Jesus' day. The scribes of Jesus' day, here's what they would do. Instead of directly quoting Moses, and say, well, this is the law of Moses, and this is what God revealed through the great prophet Moses, they would say, well, they kind of were more inclined to quote their own philosophers and, their own, and, and other um, scribes. They, they, they base more of their teachings on the traditions that Israel had built up over time, that they'd added to the law of God over time. And their religion now is based more upon rabbinic interpretation. Well, this, well, this teacher, this well-known teacher, well, he says this. And and that's the lens we see it through. That's what we do. This is... So, so, so the scribes are getting their authority from the traditions of men and from rabbinic interpretation through, through those lenses. Jesus, on the other hand, of course, he spoke all the words in the first place, but also at his baptism, he received power from the Spirit. And so Jesus has the authority himself to define and explain exactly what God means, perfectly, to erase confusion. This is what Jesus had come to do. This is the biggest part of his ministry, is this teaching, is to bring people back. I mean, they had all these, they they messed up divorce. That was something they really messed up. They messed up divorce, and they they had all these different things about it, and Jesus said, no, no, no. This is the way. I'm not not going to turn this into a sermon on divorce, but that was one example. Jesus said, no, 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 this is what was meant. This is what I say to you. He's the author. The author speaks with authority. And so whenever the word of Christ is exalted, we have to connect these two ideas together. Jesus came declaring the kingdom of God. We're talking about the kingdom of God, the rulership, the reign of God is manifesting in the earth, manifesting in our hearts. Whenever we exalt the word of Christ and we declare the word of Christ and we say his teaching, his content, his authority, that's what's most important. When we exalt that, what we're doing is we're extending the kingdom of God. Those two things directly go together. Anytime evil gets put on its back foot and has to give up territory and has evil is diminished, that means the word of Christ has been exalted. It means the kingdom of God is being exalted spread upon the earth. And what, when we tend to think about the kingdom of God ex- expanding and, and being expressed, especially Pentecostal types, charismatic types, spirit-filled types, anyone anyone who's open to the power and work of the Holy Spirit today, which we would fall in that camp somewhere in the most sensible biblical way that we can imagine, we're, we're in that zone for a lot of people in that zone, though, we tend to think of the kingdom of God as being expressed only through miraculous signs, miracles and healings and exorcisms and these things. That is a component of the kingdom of God, but that's one part of it. In fact, the kingdom of God being expanded, it is primarily the word of Christ being exalted and being declared, but it's also, the, it's also other things. It's when you see justice being done, true justice, biblical justice, you say, that's the kingdom of God expanding. Even if the people exercising the justice, as long as it's done in the ways, by the ways of God, even if they're not believers themselves, it's still the kingdom of God expanding. When an immoral law is repealed, you can say that's the kingdom of God expanding, because it is the true word of God, the true word of Christ that is being expressed on the earth. So we say that is God's kingdom. Even if the people involved in it themselves don't actually believe, It's the kingdom growing. Man, God's rule and reign. Because God, when he speaks, he has power and authority, and he wants things a certain way. He's holy, and and so his ways are good and right. So we see the kingdom expanding, this this, this kingdom, these signs and wonders. Yes, the declaration of the words, yes. Evil fleeing, yes, these amazing things. And we see here in this short passage we looked at today, we see... A literary sandwich. We talked about this in previous weeks. That Mark loves sandwich. Mark's he loves sandwiches. And so the two bookends of this, we see Mark talking about. You know, the the, the bread is the life of ministry, the person of Jesus, and the teaching of Jesus. That's that's the the bookends. And in the middle, you've got this exorcism that happens. And that thing in the middle is the sign, is the the action that validates and speaks to the bookends. That the validation speaks to what's on happening either side of the story. And so we see in the synagogue, this man cries out. He's possessed by a demon. This happens. I've seen this. We've seen this. Many Christians have seen this. People under some kind of demonic influence. The guy cries out. Let's review verse 24 again. Verse 24. It says, what have you, this is what the man says, he cries out under the the, the influence of this demon, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, so they know exactly who he is, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Jesus had already had an encounter with Satan in the wilderness, right, he's 40 days and praying and fasting in the wilderness, going through temptations. So he had a head-on collision with with Satan at that point and and defeated Satan in that point. Now he's, so he's faced the chief demon and now he's facing Satan's minions head-on, another collision. This is is what the Bible is. It's the story, the greatest story of the fight between good and evil. So let's hope and pray that Disney doesn't get a hold of it and reboot it and ruin it. I see that round of applause. Notice here, in this struggle between good and evil, that the demon does say, "I know who you are," so he's speaking from a singular, but just before that he says, um, "We or does he say? He uses, he uses "we," uses plural." right? "Have you come to destroy us?" Sorry, yeah, us." So demons are on a team. There's a lot of them. They haven't gone anywhere since the times of the New Testament. Not everything evil that happens is demonic. Not every sickness is demonic. There's different things at different times. We have to to discern what powers are behind what things. But we see that there's a a team element here, that there's lots of demons, lots of demons at work. And one of the the mistakes that people make in warfare is that they underestimate their enemy. It's one of the, the greatest mistakes of history. You learn this from studying battles and wars of history that people didn't realize how many, how many soldiers were in the opposing army. How big is their army? And how big is our, our army? What, what resources do they have? What weapons do they have? What kind of training do they have? The more intel you have on your enemy, the more you can actually assess, can we even win this battle? And, and, and then also, once we understand, we've got more insight, how do we actually fight? What's the, the best, most strategic way to fight? So never underestimate the enemy. Because the enemy even shows up at church. You notice that? I mean, that's pretty brazen, isn't it? A demon didn't just show up at their version of church, but he shows up when the Son of God is preaching. I mean, that's pretty brazen to me. You know who the, you know who the demons are showing up at church because they're always the ones complaining about the sermon. That's how you, could, you can tell. You're like? I'm glad you like that one. I couldn't resist that one, that one. It's a flash of Holy Spirit inspiration, that one. We're told that this is an unclean spirit. That's what the, the, the Bible uses different phrases to, to describe demons. This one phrase is used, unclean. This is the idea that demonic spirits, fallen angels, are toxic. They are, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're toxic, they're... A phrase, I've got a word on the end of my tongue here I can't think of, but they essentially, they're, they're destructive somehow, so that the, the more that you press into darkness, the more that you're influenced by evil, the more corrosive it is to you, the more it degrades you, the more you're, you're, you're torn down by it, you're more, the, more you, the more evil you become. It, it has a cumulative effect. On the other hand, you notice what this, this demon says to Jesus, he calls him the Holy One of God. So the, de, the, the, the demonic spirits are called unclean. But Jesus is referred to as being holy, as being clean. So you have, you're unclean and clean. So the idea is this, that the closer you get to Jesus, the more you know Jesus, he has cleansing power. He has a purifying, sanctifying power where the, the, the toxins and the, the destructive things that have been put on us by evil, that Jesus purifies us and sets us free from those things. And this is the grace of Jesus to us. If we have been oppressed by anything truly evil, we've been pinned down, possessed, attacked, harmed, lied to, whatever it is, we've been under that oppression of demonic powers. The grace of Jesus to us is that with a word, he can set us free. With one word. You see, there's, there's so much shame and disappointment and regret. It's been so long. I've done so many things. I've gone, I pushed into evil. I didn't realize what it was. I was tricked. I was, And now I'm seeing the light. Now I'm seeing that I shouldn't have done that. Now I'm seeing I should have gone a different way. How can I redeem all the mistakes, all the, the pathway I've gone down? How can I ever be redeemed of that? Well, Jesus, he's the Holy One. When you get with Jesus, you get purified. Oh man, that's such good news. That's such good news. The, the revelation here is that Jesus has this this higher authority. And what's, what's, what's amazing about this is that this fight between good and evil and this example here doesn't even seem that hard, does it? In one sermon, Jesus wins the hearts of all the people. Just took one sermon. I mean, the scribes have been teaching them. I mean, you've got to understand how, I almost said a bad word, how angry the scribes would have been. They've been teaching these people their whole lives. And in one sermon... Jesus wins the hearts of all the people. And in one word, he sets this man free of this demonic spirit. This is the power of Jesus. The scribes lack this power. They can't do it. The voices that we listen to, the scribes of today, our version of the scribes, whatever they may be, they tend to have no power. Because the the scribes actually represent the the religious system of the day, the the religious establishment, the temple and all the priests. The scribes are kind of the face to the people of all of that. Jesus has more authority than them. And he casts out the demons, so he has more authority over the spiritual forces. It's telling us Jesus has authority over heaven and earth. This is how powerful he is. And it's ironic, it's ironic, the demon, he knows who Jesus is. Unequivocally, he doesn't question it. He says, I know, and I, I know what you've come to do to me, and I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. He knows, and he obeys. Let's make sure that we're not outdone by demons, that we are certain and convinced of the identity of Jesus, that he is the Holy One of God, he is the Son of God, and that when he speaks, we obey. There is life and freedom and goodness, and grace in trusting the words from Jesus. What voices of authority are we sitting under? Are there scribes that we listen to more than the words of Jesus? Is there a particular teacher that you cling on to more than the words of Jesus? Is there a commentator that you cling on to more than the the words of Jesus? Is there a politician or a news source or an influencer or a religious institution that you identify with that you get a lot of identity from that has more weight more influence than the words of Jesus one of the problems with institutional power and people who have had positions of authority for a long time is that they get captured by ideologies and by other people's opinions and interpretations And so they become blind to the the truth, to the the real teachings of Jesus. Is there a power in your life that has more power than the words of Jesus? Because anytime we open ourselves up to the voices out there, the voices of authority in our world, and and we start listening to them, even if we're slightly cautious or we say, well, I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. I'm going to listen to a few other things as well. Even... But the main voices we listen to, what happens over time is they start to shape our identity. They start to define who we are without us even realizing it. That's how vulnerable we are. You've got to understand, our internal sense of who we are is so malleable. I mean, are you the... Whenever I'm thinking about embarrassing things I did when I was like 10 years old, I have to constantly tell myself, I'm a different person. I'm not a 10 year old boy anymore. I'm not that kid anymore. I feel embarrassed about that one thing I did years ago. I'm not even that, I would not do that now. I'm not that person anymore. Our sense of identity and who we are and how we feel about ourselves can change in a second. I mean, you can have somebody come over you and say the most encouraging, uplifting, powerful things. And what does that do to you? That changes you. You feel completely different about yourself. Or you can have someone come and tear you down and say something. People can plant ideas. I mean, You heard of PSYOPs, right? Governments do PSYOPs, psychological operations, that's what a PSYOP is. We're under actually psychological operations even today, that are run by different governments, by our own government, not to sound too conspiratorial, but it's documented. Um, It shows you how, some people are more susceptible to it than others, but it shows you even in a simple word, a simple idea, even just hearing one little thing. We're so malleable. We believe it. We latch onto it. It starts to define who we are. But those powers—they don't know us. They don't understand us. They do not love us. They do not love us. They do not have our best interests at heart. God, on the other hand, he loves us so much. He cares about us so much, and he has a completely different message—a countercultural message. He has—it's not a psycho—it's not a psyop. It's not a psychological operation. It's the operation of let's get to the truth. Let's get to reality. Let's get back to the words from God, the definition from God. Let's get back to that. This message, and this is the message that Jesus came to to declare over us, the message of grace. Did these people at the synagogue, did they show some kind of sign that they were worthy of Jesus showing up that day? Did Jesus look at them and say, they look like a good bunch. They look like they've worked on their, their righteousness quite a bit. I'm impressed. Let me show up and favor them. Did the the demonized man, did he repent? Did he come and say, I need help. I want to believe. Jesus, see, this is the power. This is the grace of God. Jesus moves, works, before we even start communicating, before we even start realizing what's going on, before we even really realize we need God. God is in the world. God is in our lives. God is showing up. God is moving. If you're here today, it's because God is moving. If you're online today listening, it's because God is moving. The author is speaking, and we have to listen to the words of the author. That's the most riveting way. That's the most exciting way. That's the truthful way, is to listen to the life-changing, freedom-giving, joy-infusing words of Jesus. Our lives are enhanced. Our lives become meaningful when we listen to the words, the the words of the author of life. Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse 10, I came to give them life and life to the full. Life to the full. What happened with our friend Michael Phelps? Well, Michael Phelps received this phone call from a friend of his, Ray Lewis from the NFL, who is an outspoken Christian. And his words were strong and he spoke with conviction. And he said to his friend, Michael Phelps, he said, he said, this is this moment right now, this is when you have to start really fighting. This is when your true character really starts to show up. And it's moments like this. He said, don't, don't shut down. If you shut down, we all lose. Don't shut down. He said many other things to him. Michael Phelps heard the words of his friends and it started to resonate with him. And he started to feel like I need to My 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 life is worth a second chance. It gave him a a moment to pause and to realize he was in a moment of despair, and to wake up a little bit in that moment. And Ray Lewis's voice—it wasn't just a voice on the end of the line. It was a beacon of hope. It was a person guiding another person out of darkness and destruction, the voices of destruction into the light. And in a moment of desperate faith, having really come to the end of himself, Michael Phelps agreed in that moment on the phone to go to rehab and to get help. And as he's sitting in rehab, he starts reading this book that Ray Lewis had given him. It was a Christian book. He started reading this book page by page, turning, reading. And he started to find hope that he'd never discovered before, started to find light and strength from a different source he'd never experienced before. And he started believing in God. This process was leading him to salvation. Now, it wasn't a dramatic, sudden change for him, although throughout the whole journey, it did go deep. He gave his life to Christ. And what happened was the, the real Michael Phelps started to resurface See, see, the veneer, the, the illusion of Michael Phelps, the champion, the Olympian, the successful person, this, this false identity that had been created in his own mind through the, the voices of the world, through the demonic powers that are speaking to him, from his own voices and the absent voice of his father, all those voices got silenced, he started to get the voice of God in his life. To the point where he realized, I need to reconcile with my earthly father, and so he started working on reconciling and his estranged relationship with his father getting restored and started getting healing emotionally from all those things, but more than anything, finding strength from God and a purpose beyond the swimming pool. His testimony, his story, illustrates to us the importance of the voices that we listen to. You see, there's such fakery with authority. There's so many fake voices of authority that want to lie to us and deceive us and get us off track, we need to tune into the true source of authority. Listen, who, who we listen to matters. Our teachers, who teach us, matters. Our influences matter. If we don't understand that the sources we're receiving from, if we don't understand that what they're, where they're getting their information from, where they're, what their worldview is, what their goal is, what they're trying to do, we don't understand that the fruit in our lives actually might taste rotten. Because we're not getting it from here, from God. We're not getting it from the author, but we're getting it from a different source. God made us. He made us to reflect his glory. He made us to know him. He made us to resonate at our deepest core when he speaks. And that's one of the signs you know you're a true Christian is that when you read the words of Jesus, when you hear the words of Jesus, even if you haven't been living them, even if you're trying to resist them and run away from them, the, the deepest part of your heart... You can't explain it. It's not logical, but you know it's true. You just know it. Here's how we need to start living life with the commentary turned on. Because there are some scenes in life, you get to life and you're like, I don't like this scene. This is a torture scene. This is a a scary scene. This is a dangerous scene. This is a traumatic scene. I don't like this particular scene in the movie of my life. Well, you know what you need to do is you need to turn on the commentary. You need to hear from the creator, from the author, the overlay of the words explaining this is what's going on. If you don't have that, then you, you're left with your own interpretation. And guess what? Our interpretations are stupid. Looking at rabbinical interpretation through the lens of fancy, educated, experty people, you know what? Experts have failed us more than ever in the last several years, more than ever. There is no other expert. It's Jesus, his words. Let's sing to the, the author of life. Let's sing to the, the God, the creator of all things. He deserves our worship. Singing songs, singing worship songs is a way to turn the commentary on. You know that? When you've got a scene in your life, you're like, this is a di- difficult scene. I don't like this scene. It's a slow scene or whatever it might be. See, I want a, I want a car chase scene. I would like a car chase scene right now. Whatever scene you're in, you say, I've got to turn the commentary on. Find out what, what, what does the author say? What's the author's intent? What's, what's going on in this scene right now?